I'll tell you who this Jesus is. He's an unusual one who made clear, strong, controversial, unambiguous statements, uh, some of which we became acquainted with last week. Uh, This Lord Jesus made, for instance, in John chapter 10, these following statements. Imagine being there as one of the original recipients of what he had to say. What would be going through your mind when he said, as he did in John chapter 10, uh, in verse 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Furthermore, he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He said, I'm the good shepherd. This was his claim. And he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Furthermore, he said, no one has taken it, his life that is, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority. The Lord Jesus said, now we know him as Lord, but you're in the crowd 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. This particular rabbi didn't come through any familiar schools. His credentials didn't come through other rabbis. You don't really know who he's all about. He was born in an insignificant place, and he was a carpenter's son, and he has the gall to say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative, and I have the authority, not only to lay it down, but I have the authority to take it up again. What would you be thinking if you're in the midst of the crowd and you hear these rather outlandish statements? Someone makes these claims in your hearing. You have no choice but to respond. You can't be neutral about claims like this. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the source of an abundant life. I'm the one who laid down my life, and I have the power to rise from the dead. You have no choice but to get connected to those statements, and I'd like to show you soon that the people in the day did that very thing. Everyone must respond to statements like that, but the responses really, really are different. And so, for instance, here's a sampling of the responses of the original listeners to those rather outlandish claims. Look at it. It's in John chapter 10, verse 19. We'll just look at a few verses beginning in John 10, 19 today. The Lord made those statements, and here's what we read. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. These words, Jesus claimed to be the way by which people can be safe and secure. Jesus claimed to be the source of an abundant life. Jesus claimed to be willing to intentionally lay down his life for people, undeserving people. Jesus claimed to have a special intimacy with God, whom he claimed to be his father, and he claimed to be the special recipients of the father's love. Jesus claimed to have authority not only to lay down his life, but to take it up again. Folks, you must agree. Everyone must. These are strong statements. These are unusual and unique claims. How would you respond if you were there? Someone out of the blue makes claims like this. How did the people there respond? Well, I'll tell you. When they heard these claims from the mouth of this Yeshua, this unusual rabbi, they were not united. The words of Jesus divided the crowd. Now, that may surprise you, 
because we like to think the good works of Jesus will elicit a positive response. I'm having to tell you increasingly that's not the case. The words of Jesus in this text and in reality oftentimes have the opposite effect of evoking a positive response. Oftentimes the words of Jesus do not unify. They, in fact, as we see in this text, they divided the listeners. They evoked a response, but it wasn't really a good one. Some respond to the words of Jesus by accepting them, but others respond to those same words in an opposite way. That is to say, by rejecting his words. And don't you see, the words of Jesus either unite or divide. You and I must not be surprised by that reaction. We mean well, and these are the good words of our chief shepherd and Lord. And yet, oftentimes, they don't elicit a very positive response. We have to accept the fact that in far too many cases, the words of Jesus divide people. In fact, over and over in John's gospel that we've been spending so many weeks on, we see people divided over Jesus. And so we read, we just read in verse 19, a division occurred, do you see the word, again. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. And so you ask the question, why does John say this thing happened again? It's because this thing had happened before. Let me remind you of it. In John chapter 7, we were there a long time ago. In John 7, beginning in verse 40, some of the people, therefore... When they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, no, 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 this is the Christ. Still others were saying, no, that can't be. Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And in John chapter 7, verse 43, this statement is made, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. You see, it happened before. Here's another occasion in which a division occurred. It's in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the clay to open his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And in verse 16 of John 9, we read, Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And listen, there was a division among the Jews. And now for the third time in John's gospel, we see that the words of Christ have the same effect People end up with divided opinions. And so you can see why John in verse 19 of chapter 10 says, a division occurred again because of the words of Christ. I emphasize this, for you and I ought not be surprised when it happens. Some are united by the words of Christ, but others are divided. Do you remember, for instance, do you remember the Lord saying this in Luke chapter 12? Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Many do. The Lord asks that question. Then he answers it. He says, I tell you, no, but rather division. If I'm reading this correctly, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to cause a great divide. It was a divide between those who would believe and those who would not believe. He came to seek those who would believe. 
and to constitute them a special people unto his own glory. The Lord Jesus clearly says, I did not come to make peace. I came to cause division. But it is said, you might bring to mind, it is said in various other passages of Scripture that Jesus would come to bring peace, not division. Now, you would be right, but it isn't peace, as you and I might commonly think. He came to bring peace, not between us. He came to bring peace between God and man. We're at war with God. We're his adversaries. He came to effect peace between warring parties. It's a vertical dimension of peace. The byproduct, maybe, is better relationships with one another, but that's not the primary kind of peace he came to give. He came to extend peace to those who respond favorably to his offer of forgiveness. He is indeed, in Hebrew, called the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, for sure. But those who reject his offer do not have peace. They can never be privy to the kingdom of peace. And then, furthermore, in Luke chapter 12, the Lord goes on to say, From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against Daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's not good news, but it's real, and it happens. Jesus is, don't you see, the dividing line, even between family and friends. And so when it comes to Christ and the question, who is he? There is no room for neutrality. You either choose for him or you choose against him. And if you choose to be for Jesus, then your choice will bring strong opposition from those, sometimes even in your own family, who make the other choice. But isn't the Lord, you might say, isn't the Lord pro-family? Yes, he is, but he's pro-heavenly family first, earthly family only second. Now, it's not that the Lord in any way was suggesting to his followers that they should disown their family members. No way. He was merely pointing out that conflict inevitably occurs when acceptance and rejection of Christ meet up in the same family unit. To demonstrate this, I'd like to ask you by a show of hands this. When you got saved, did it cause some family friction? If when you got saved, you ran into some family friction, could you raise your hand? I'd just like to take a look. Look. It's true. I remember when I became a believer, when I accepted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, Messiah, um, one of uh, my Orthodox relatives, a rabbi, visited another rabbi and arranged uh, a meeting with him and the family because of what I, and at that time, my mother had done. We were traitors in my background, and the rabbi told my relatives, this was his counsel, you must no longer have anything to do with them. In fact, you must consider them to be dead. And the rabbi even offered to perform a mock funeral service to make it clear that we were dead to the rest of the family. What do we ever do to them? All we did was to accept 
Jesus. Don't you see? There's no such thing as a passive neutrality when it comes to Christ. You're either for him or against him. I was quite disturbed at the time until I began to see it is statistically not an aberration, even for family members who reject Christ to reject those who've been embraced by Christ. And I emphasize this point because we shouldn't be surprised by this when it happens. It just does. Listen, folks, if we proclaim a message that everybody loves, we can be sure we're not proclaiming the gospel message. I'll tell you why I say that. The gospel confronts sinners with their sinful hearts, and very often sinners don't like that. They take offense at it. The gospel confronts human pride because it plainly declares that no amount of human so-called virtue and goodnesses can ever reconcile us to God. Prideful human people don't like that. Those who respond favorably to the Lord's good news gospel message are united with others who have accepted it, but those who reject the gospel of Christ are divided from those who have accepted it. That's the way it is. And if we are serious about following Jesus, there will be times when people will separate from us, they will be angry with us, they will argue with us, and as is happening to so many of our fellow Christians increasingly around the world, they will do what they have to do to hurt us and extinguish the message. That's the reality. Sometimes the words and the ways of Christ cause a great divide. And though we should always be intent on doing what we can to build bridges with people, it's not always possible. The Bible anticipates this, and so God, under his inspiration, has one no less than the Apostle Paul record for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Why does it say if possible? Because God who knows human nature and the forcefulness of the gospel message knows it may not be possible to be in good relations with folks when you're serious about following him. That's just the way it is. So then, in the text, the words of Christ cause a division among the people. And we see a little more about it now in verse 20. We're back at verse 20 of chapter 10, many of them, the people in the audience, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Is he Lord? Well, not to these folks. They saw him to be, here's another descriptive term of the Lord that begins with the letter L, maybe you came upon it. If he's not Lord, they said he's a lunatic. He's a demonized lunatic. He's not to be taken seriously. And so they say, why do you listen to him even? Folks, let's pause just for a second. Try to appreciate the depth of this insult. Look at how man's worst insults were heaped upon God's best God-man. Unbelievable frankly, that God has had mercy on any of us. They called the Lord of all a demon-possessed lunatic. Is he a demonized and deranged person? Some thought so. But others, now we're in verse 21, others were saying, 
These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? These others, this second group of responders, were less caustic than the first. They seemed to be more rational, more reasonable about things. So they, they investigated and focused on two things about this unusual Jesus that led them to an altogether different conclusion than the first groups of people. They, for instance, considered his words and his works. So with regard to his words, it says, they said, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. They listened to the coherence and lucidity, logic, truthfulness, insightfulness, and authoritative nature of the words of this Jesus, and they ruled out that he was demonized. These are simply not the words of demons. And they also listened to the contents of his words. Demons do not glorify God. But Jesus did in all his words. In fact, Jesus did not seek to glorify himself or anyone else other than God in his declarations. This is the opposite of what a demonized person would do. And not only do they make reference to his words, they make reference to his works. And they say a demon cannot not open the eyes of the blind, can he? See, that's the event that preceded this. A man congenitally blind was suddenly given sight miraculously by the Lord. They look to the works of this unusual Jesus and they say, that's not the activity of demons. I'll tell you what demons are more likely to do. Poke someone's eyes out, not open them up. But this Jesus did the opposite, you see. So this second group seems to be more reasonable in their response to Jesus than the first. But I ask you this, are they really any more saved than the first? Well, not necessarily. Though they denied that Jesus was a demonized or deranged person, did they acknowledge him to be divine? He's not demonized, they said. He's not deranged. But that, did they bow at his feet as one who is divine. We have no such record of it, to tell you the truth. So one group very aggressively cursed him while the other was more benign. But folks, it doesn't matter. So what? If you label Jesus in any way less than he actually is, you will end up occupying the same hell as those who are extreme blasphemers. It does not matter. One time, I had a friend who was a, a track athlete. He was a broad jumper, long jumper. And uh, he liked this illustration. Imagine that someone, two people are standing here on this cliff and there's a deep valley below them. They're trying to jump to the other side and the champion, Olymp Olympic quality broad jumper runs and he just misses the other edge by two feet. Uh, this other guy who's just a couch potato and doesn't do much, he misses it by 20 feet. What's the difference? They both plunge to their death. So folks, whether you're very caustic, extremely blasphemous, or whether you're one of these, well, I don't think he's demonized. I think he meant well. I think he's a good teacher. I think he, he was moral. Uh, in all his way. It does not matter. That looks more acceptable, but it's not. If Jesus claimed to be God in flesh, 
if he claimed to be the source of an abundant life, if he claimed to be the way, truth, and the life, and you reduce and minimize his declarations to something like, well, I think he was a nice guy, he meant well, what difference does it make? You still plunge to the depths of degradation and end up eternally in the same hellacious place as those who are aggressive deniers of who Christ is. And I ask you, why would people do this? In the face of the evidence, the words and works of Christ, why would one minimize the lordship of Christ? I'll tell you why. If you label Jesus as in any way less than Lord, you do not have to pay attention to him. That's why we're prone to do it. If he's Lord, I must bow at his feet and do what he says. If he's anything less than that, I don't have to take him seriously. And the sinner in rebellion against the creator does not want to take the Lord Jesus seriously. He is not Lord. He is a lunatic or he is a liar. Did you come up with those in your group? Yeah. If he's not Lord, he's a lunatic or a liar. And who in their right mind would dare take a lunatic or a liar seriously? So then, these are more labels for Jesus, beginning with the letter L. Jesus is either Lord, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Now, I just presented you with something that's come to be known as a trilemma. Have you heard the word dilemma? Dilemma, dilemma, that means uh, you have to choose between two options, a dilemma. A trilemma means you're faced with the necessity of choosing between not two options, try, but three options. He's either Lord or second option, he's a liar. Uh, third option, he is a lunatic. Now, I want to speak to you about a fellow named C.S. Lewis who was quoted in the video we saw. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant British theologian, professor, and author. He wrote many books, including one called Mere Christianity. I commend it to your reading. Mere Christianity, it's a classic. Many in reading it have been ushered into the kingdom of God. Chuck Colson was one such one. Have you heard of Chuck Colson? He's with the Lord now. He was associated with the Watergate scandal of old during the President Nixon era, you recall. Chuck Colson, he did time in prison, and he read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, got radically saved, born again. In fact, wrote about it in a book by that title, Born Again. I commend that to your reading, too. Two good books, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Born Again by Chuck Colson. Anyway, with regard to C.S. Lewis, I brought him up because he's the one who popularized the trilemma I just shared with you. That is to say, you only have three options. Jesus is either Lord, or if you reject that, you're left with one of the other two. He's then either a liar or a lunatic. And so in keeping with this, C.S. Lewis, in mere Christianity, made this statement. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman 
or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So what is C.S. Lewis saying? I think he's saying that Jesus can only be Lord, liar, or lunatic, but he cannot be a good teacher because if he was not what he claimed to be, that would make him a liar or a lunatic, you see. If Jesus was not the Lord, yet knew full well what he was claiming, that would make him a liar. Or if Jesus was not the Lord, but didn't understand what he was saying, then that would make him a lunatic. Next time you run into someone who dismisses the Lord Jesus by saying, I give him credit, he meant well, he was a good teacher, you should challenge that. You must say, oh, no, he wasn't. He claimed to be divinity and fleshed. If he wasn't, how could he be a good teacher would make him a liar or a lunatic? So those are the three options. Is there a fourth option, however, about Jesus, also starting with the letter L. I think there is. How about this one? Jesus is neither Lord, liar, or lunatic. Jesus is a legend. He never existed. He's not real. He's Santa Claus. He's the Easter Bunny. Your faith in a non-existent one is in vain. So that's the fourth option. Now, there was a man named Wayne Jackson who wrote a fine article entitled False Ideas About Jesus Christ, and he addresses this claim that Jesus never existed. He states that this idea was popularized by a German historian named Bruno Bauer near the middle of the 19th century. And then in more modern times, Jackson tells us, about an entry uh, called, in a, in a volume called The Great Soviet Encyclopedia, which was published in Moscow in 1952. It's an encyclopedia. And there's a two-line entry under the word Jesus, and this is what it says. Jesus, this is the name of the mythological founder of Christianity. See, so... The Soviet authors of the great Soviet encyclopedia are opting for the fourth option, the fourth L, Jesus is a legend. He never existed. So Wayne Jackson uh, rebuts that point of view as follows. He reminds us that there are thousands of copies of the Greek New Testament in whole or part that testify to the existence of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the Jewish historian Josephus twice mentions Christ. The Babylonian Talmud, that's ancient Jewish, it's a collection of Jewish writings, refers to Jesus' trial by the Sanhedrin and to his execution on the eve of Passover. Pliny was the governor of Bithynia. He wrote a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan in A.D. 112, in which he referred to the fact that Christians gather on a certain day to worship Christ as if he were a god. The historian Tacitus, in his Annals in A.D. 115, comments regarding one Christus, who was condemned to death by 
Pontius Pilate. Suetonius, in A.D. 120, was secretary to the emperor Hadrian. He mentions the expulsion of certain Jews from Rome due to the controversy surrounding one called Crestus, an incident which agrees almost identically to what we read in Acts chapter 18 too. Come on, folks. Jesus is real. He's no legend, and the evidence for his existence is ample and plentiful for any thinking person. But if he is not a legend, what then is he? As we have seen, the options are limited. If he is not a legend, he is either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord. As we close, I simply want to ask you this piercing question. What is your opinion about who Jesus is? He is, you see, the dividing line of humanity. Some will accept him as Lord. Others reject him as such. If so, if so, what is your conclusion? If you reject his lordship, the burden is on you to prove that he was a liar. Or the burden is on you to prove that he was a lunatic. I would rather have the burden of demonstrating the lordship of Jesus Christ if I was set up in a court of law to do so than to defend the other positions. I think there's much more persuasive evidence in the direction of the lordship of Christ than any could muster with regard to the fact that he was a liar or a lunatic. Now, folks, one day, maybe, we will get to the end of John's gospel. I have doubts about it myself. But as a sneak preview to the conclusion of John's gospel, I want to read to you John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you are not of the opinion that Jesus is Lord, thank you for being here tonight. We respect you for coming. But we do not respect you for coming to a conclusion about Christ without a careful examination of the evidence. Therefore, I would like to commend to you this book we have sampled tonight, John's Gospel. Read it, 21 chapters. Just read it. If you had time on your hands, you can read it even in one sitting, though you're not required to do so. If you're an honest seeker after truth, I challenge you, before reading John's Gospel, shout out to God in any way you're able to, Oh God, show me the truth. I wish to see the truth. I want to know the truth. If that is not the prerequisite with which you begin reading in John's gospel, save yourself the time. If you're not a seeker after truth, you're wasting your time in God's. <laughs> but if you're really honestly a seeker after truth, 
And if you're willing to say, I'm willing to count the cost is if Jesus is Lord, even though it may separate me from my family, I will count the cost. If you're willing to say, if you are who you say you are, I will devote my life to you, no matter what the cost. If so, if you can say that to God, then you open up to chapter one in John's gospel, and in the privacy of your own home, you simply read it and let it speak for itself. Examine the record about Jesus Christ. See at the end of the 21st chapter what L conclusion you come to. Is he a legend? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord who wishes to be your Savior? Challenge number two. If you don't want to read John's gospel alone, I'll go through it with you privately. You and me. Your terms, your place. Even over lunch, you buy. I'll go through it with you. We'll just read it. We'll talk through it. All 21 chapters. And then you have to tell me what you conclude about who Jesus is. If it's a deal, just let me know. You can tap me on the shoulder before we leave. You can email, you can text, you can do whatever you want. Glad to meet with you. If it's not me you care to meet with, we have a fantastic staff here and many, many other church members, wonderful people who you may feel more comfortable with, no problem. If, even before you go tonight, in fact, would you stand to your feet as uh, we get ready to be dismissed? Even before you leave tonight, we have fine people in the room behind us called the Connection Center who would be willing to chat with you about who this Jesus is and to pray with you really about anything else that's on your mind right now. I would invite you to take advantage of those opportunities because we are so persuaded that Jesus is Lord and wishes to be your personal savior. We'll do anything necessary to make it as easy and convenient as possible for you simply to objectively examine the written record, the evidence pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not willing to do that, your opinion is worth nothing. You cannot have opinion about one without examining the record about that one. If at the end you come to a different conclusion, we feel terrible for you and shall pray for you, but we will respect at least your willingness to examine the data. Lord Jesus, I pray you would impress upon those here who stand in need of coming to a sure and certain conclusion of who you are based on the evidence. I pray that that one or ones would take up us up on our offer to be available to help them in their quest for truth, for information. And I pray, oh God, of all truth, that you would, as only you could, impress yourself upon the one, even here now, who is left with uncertainties about who you are. For it's your desire to be known, this is why you came, to be known for who you are and to save those who accept you for who you are. Oh God, we've done our part. It's inadequate. Would you now do the rest? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.